You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. I will spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and I will answer as many as I can. You know, everybody always thinks that they're open-minded, and they can never understand why everybody else doesn't see it the way they do. Today... We are joined by Judy Gruen. Her columns have been published in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, Age.com, and uh, too many more to mention. She's the author of numerous books, especially humorous ones, um, and most recently, um, she's wrote her memoir, The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith. Judy, how are you today? Wonderful, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, Steve. Oh, good. You know, I, before I even start, um, is it true that you wanted to be the next Irma Bombeck? That what? That you wanted to be the next Irma Bombeck. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She was a huge, huge star in the humorous world when I was a kid. And... Um, Laughter was so important in our family. Laughter is important for everybody, not just my family. But uh, without meaning to just jump right into something very heavy, um, we had a family tragedy in in our family when my brother, my older brother, died, and it was such a sorrowful time, and it plunged us all into despair. And I I learned though that after that, it was actually all the more important to find ways to find comfort and to get rebalanced and know that life does move on even in pain. And laughter is some of the best medicine, as Norman Cousins famously said. Okay, good. I guess I figured I would throw that out to start. But I, I usually start with a different question, so today it's my second question. Who is Judy Gruen? Did I lose you? I, I, I heard you say, who is, and then I didn't hear anything else. I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. They're working on it. The question, who is Judy Gruen? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. That's a good question. I wish you had emailed me that question. I would have had more time to prepare. I, I hope, I hope that Judy Gruen is somebody who continues to evolve and grow in, in a spiritually and emotionally positive way. One of the reasons that I became convinced that becoming observant of the Sabbath and of, of our Torah in general was because I began to realize that that was a path to self-development and personal growth, which has been a big industry now for, for a good couple of generations. Okay, so we're going to, I think as we talk, we're going to get into that, and I'm very glad you answered it that way, 
And I sort of apologize. I didn't forewarn you, but I, I really <laughs> like to to hear what people say. It's uh, it gives pause. It's it's something important for people to think um, who they are. And and I think throughout your book, the skeptic and the rabbi, part of your book is finding who you are, which is why absolutely. Okay, cool. Absolutely. So with that, um, why did you write your book, uh, The Skeptic and the Rabbi? It's different than your humorous stuff. Yes, um, I can answer this easily, um, but I also want at the outset, and I hope you'll agree, Steve, because um, I, I know that you've seen my book and perhaps had a chance to read some of it, that the there is a lot of humor in the book as well. Yes, there but, definitely is. Yeah. And and I just want you to know, I read the whole book. I have all kinds of markings um, of different thumb things that I put down to make sure that we discuss. So I actually have read cover to cover and even the questions in the back. Oh, great. Well, I appreciate that so, so much. I know that often radio hosts don't always have the opportunity for that. So why did I write the book? Um, I've been a journalist for well over 30 years. And I, I have a master's in journalism. I started my career in healthcare, uh, writing, university healthcare, um, corporate healthcare corporation, and I, I love that because it was very meaningful to me. But as I, um, after I got married to my wonderful husband Jeff, 32 years ago, we embarked jointly on a, a path toward Torah observance. Neither of us had grown up, you know, being uh, observant of the Sabbath or strictly kosher or anything like that. Um, I was closer to tradition than, than my husband's family. So over the years, as I became more knowledgeable and felt more connected emotionally, uh, physically, in every way to my Judaism and saw it as a growth path, I let my writing also focus more on that because I felt it's important. I, I have something that I can share, a worldview that so many Jewish writers out there are secular. There's a million Jewish writers, and at first I thought the world doesn't need another Jewish writer writing about Jewish things, but I changed my mind. And in terms of this book specifically, what really got to me, um, I have, I've written about this, there were a number of mem memoirs. I'm sorry, there's an echo, so I'm trying so hard to just speak clearly, um, but the echo is a little bit difficult. Right, so um, I hear you clearly. There were a clearly. number of memoirs. Um, but I'm just going to tell them behind the glass. She hears an echo, mm -hmm. Judy. They're going to see if they can work on it, but I hear you loud and clear. So they're telling okay. me you're very clear. I'm sorry for the audience that I seem to be stopping and starting. No, no, it's very um, good. Okay. Thank you, kind audience members. So a number of memoirs were written by people who had been living in some kind of orthodox community and some kind of orthodox life, and for whatever reason, they had, they had their reasons, left it, and not only did they leave it, but they left it in some level of bitterness and a lot of pain. And while they had every right to tell their story, those were the only memoirs that were being published that were getting secular media attention that were associated with orthodoxy. And 
because I'm a writer, I pay a lot of attention to what's being published, who's publishing what, what's, what's out there. And it became very frustrating and very upsetting to me, personally upsetting to me, to see that the general world, the secular world, and, and even the Jewish non-Orthodox world was not seeing any positive portrayal of people who actually chose what I will call orthodoxy. I don't like the label orthodox, but just for simplicity's sake, because, I mean, orthodoxy covers such a wide umbrella of observance and knowledge levels, right? Definitely. I couldn't let those writers speak for me. It was unfair, and so that's why I wrote my book. Now, because you're a journalist, so you therefore have um, the, as you're calling it, the secular media's attention, as you think that you have their attention more than, I guess, somebody like me? Uh, I I can't hear you. Okay, sorry, I'll, I'll do it again. Because you, do you believe you have the secular media's attention? Now? Uh, well, um, yeah, now. It depends. No, not really. I write mostly for the Jewish media, particularly H.com. Uh, there's a, the Jewish Journal here in Los Angeles, which, of course, everything's online also, which has a very, very, both of those outlets have very, very large followings. Uh, when I can, um, I get published in secular newspapers. It's a little bit tough. It's extremely competitive. Um, but... I'm doing my best to get my message out there, which is that there is so much that is beautiful, meaningful, valuable in a life of religious tradition. But everybody is different. Everybody has to find their path, their way. There's no one way to do it. Just like we learned that there are, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, 70 different ways to understand the Torah. Everybody has the opportunity to make it their own. But when I look back at my my childhood and, and the secular upbringing of so many Jews, it feels really like a crushing loss that we were bereft of our, our heritage. We didn't have the chance to even choose because we didn't know it. Right, right. And, f- and f- f- go ahead. Uh, so again, with my with my story, I wrote it with a much broader audience in mind. I wrote it uh, picturing readers who I know personally who are beginning to get involved, who are may never become you know Shomer Shabbat or anything, but are interested. And the idea is just give it, just consider it, just consider why people might do it. You don't have to necessarily do it yourself, but. Maybe you can understand a little more what the appeal is, because otherwise it can seem like there's just so many restrictions. Well, you can't do that, and you can't eat this, and you can't wear that, and it can seem like no, no, no. But what we really have is a framework that shows us the beauty of, of both what we can do as well as the value of what we are cautioned against doing because it's not good for us. Well said, which you really answered a different question I was going to ask you, um, because you write about your book that uh, this is really for everybody, your book. It's not just for somebody who wants to become, we'll use religious or orthodox, 
Um, you wrote your book for everybody, right? I well, yes and no. I'll tell you as as a writer, I and and I'm sure you can appreciate the idea behind this. There's no such thing as something that's going to appeal to everyone. You really have to, if if and there are any aspiring book authors out there, keep this in mind. You really have to picture who your audience is so that you can write for them in a way that they'll be able to absorb and, and appreciate. And there's no such thing as writing for everybody. What, uh, so again, what I wrote, uh, I wrote the book with an eye toward trying to explain the very difficult decision I made to, to follow this path, the bumps along the road, the embarrassing moments I had, the frustrations with it, and then started to, you know, see the beauty. But as you know, see, it's not a, a sappy book. It's not, and they lived happily ever after. I tell the truth. I tell the truth about other people who started on the same journey that, that my husband and I did and then turned back because it wasn't working for them. I tell the truth. But life is always complicated. So I wrote it for people who are open to learning about somebody's spiritual quest. And I have heard from readers who are not Jewish, who are of many different religions, who told me that it really gave them inspiration to continue on their own quest. Because we live in a society where the secular influence is very, very powerful, and it can make people like me feel like we're being regressive by pursuing our traditional God-centered ways. Yeah, that I get because trust me, I am a I am a teacher, um, I am a fundraiser, a director of development, and I've had my phone calls, meetings with people. I, I brought women through the school, and they saw like you know the libraries, and they said to me, "Oh." I didn't know that your children could read English books. And I'm in Detroit. I'm not like, you know, in some enclave somewhere. So, yes, I, I do very much know. And th that was the nice way when people put it to me. But in any case, you don't have to worry about me. Um, <laughs> you titled, This question is your question in the back of the book. Um, it's a great title. It's The Skeptic and the Rabbi. So who's the skeptic and who's the rabbi? Or is yes. there more than one possibility? There is, absolutely. And that's the, that's the answer that I hope that um, you're referring to the Reader's Guide in the back of the book because it's a wonderful book for, for book groups, for book clubs. Um, and many book clubs have chosen it. And um, I put that question in there because I do believe that, the, that who is the skeptic and who is the rabbi really does change at the beginning of the book. I am very clearly the skeptic, and um, the rabbi is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, uh, who was our first rabbi. Uh, he's very well known. Um, in fact, he has a website, RabbiDanielLappin.com, and he was our first Torah teacher, extremely influential. To an extent, my husband Jeff was also my rabbi because he had started learning a little bit before me and was able to answer some of my questions when I wasn't just arguing with him and giving him such a hard time, which I did. Um, and over the course of time, as I started to learn more, um, ironically, I felt a little bit like 
the rabbi when I was challenged by either, you know, a family member or, or somebody else. And the excitement of learning new things and seeing the relevance of things uh, that were written for us over 3,000 years ago is, is stunning. And it never ceases to amaze me. So, so I mean, did you think when you started um, looking into being religious, checking it out, arguing with your husband, were you? Did you feel you were open-minded, or did you feel you needed someone to pry your brain open? I guess. <clears throat> well, that was one of the hum- most humbling experiences. I thought I was open-minded, but then I realized I wasn't because. Jeff and I were dating for months and months, and I wouldn't even agree to go with with him to one class. And I thought, gee, that's not open-minded. That's incredibly closed-minded. And I almost, I've never been prone to panic attacks, but I, I really felt heart palpitations and sweaty palms the first time I even went with him to a class. And I realized, you know what? You've got a problem. And if you want to think of yourself as open and open-minded, you have to be willing to learn and be willing to, to hear. From, just because Rabbi Lapin had the title of Orthodox, it just rang so many bells for me because I was raised, you know, with the feminist perspective. I considered myself a feminist, and, and it, it did a lot of damage. Are you still a feminist? Mm. I, I wouldn't call myself one, but anybody who knows me, and I think anybody who reads my book will, will know, I'm no pushover. I'm a strong, independent-minded woman, and um, I don't need that title. <laughs> the title of being a Jewish woman is plenty for me. Very good. This almost sounds like a conversation that I have uh, with my wife at times, that, and we'll talk about this in a second, but, but basically... If she feels that she's making the correct decision, she doesn't have to worry about what everybody else thinks or has to say because she's worked it through and said, this is the direction, how to take care of my children, what I'm buying for lunch, whatever the, whatever the example is going to be. So, but, I have a, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have a friend who said, who said to me when we were discussing this issue a long time ago, she said, she's a, I think she's a brilliant woman, she said, I think it's actually condescending and patronizing to tell women that the roles and the possibilities in Jewish life that are available to them are not enough. I thought that was such a smart point. That is, and it's so interesting because I interviewed a woman last week, and really that was the central focus of our whole conversation uh, of really about stereotypes and how people stereotyped her and what she's done with her life and to tell people that uh, that we're la- just because I make a choice doesn't mean that you have to look down upon me. I'm allowed to decide I want to be a mother. I'm allowed to decide I want a business. I'm allowed to decide what I want to do with my life. But that leads me to what I wanted to ask you next. And, and that is, and you write about this, um, that as you started to become more open-minded, um, what what happened to all those stereotypes that you were so nervous about before you walked in to meet Rabbi Lappin? Well, when I started meeting some of the other young couples, um, a lot of them were just a few years ahead of us. Um, they were already married a couple years, had a couple of kids. 
I started talking to the women, and I had, uh, I'm giving away my age when I mentioned The Stepford Wives, which was a famous movie a long, long time ago where the women were just kind of robotic and following the instructions of a man, and I thought these are going to be Stepford Wives in long sleeves. And I was very chagrined to see that how wrong I was again, that um, they were educated, they were lively. They had made this choice, too, almost all of them. And I also saw from being in their homes with children, and of course I wanted marriage and children very, very much. I was always ambitious in terms of my writing career, but I was also ambitious to have a family. Um, one was not more important than the other. And when I started to see how much intelligence and wisdom and patience and skill it takes to run a home in, in, a, in a good way, what it takes to raise children, uh, I was, again, chagrined at, at my very unfair stereotype. And I started really paying attention because I, I had a lot to learn from these women. And thank God I did. Ah, amazing. So that uh, following in the same line, so you write about how you were worried about people judging, becoming judgmental, who's judgmental. Um, is that, w- with the journey that you've taken, um, have, have you found that people being judgmental about you or even you becoming judgmental about others, is that a concern? It's a big concern, and I think it's a big problem that we have in the world right now. We see in our in our country politically how divisive things are, and how politically, you know, Republicans will judge Democrats and vice versa without even getting to know them. And yes, it's a problem in the Jewish world too, and it's a problem we really need to to pay attention to and to try and. Um, give each other the benefit of the doubt that everybody, you know, wants good things. The question is, how do we achieve those things? How do we achieve what's fair and good in terms of the society? I did lose a number of my friends. I knew that would happen. Um, You know, that can happen anyway over time when people live in different places and your lives just diverge. But sometimes I, I still feel a little sad about that. But I know that um, some friends just couldn't understand why I made this decision. But ironically, none of them ever asked me why. Isn't that interesting? They were as, they also had the lack of curiosity that I did. So there is a problem with that. And one one line that I love to to mention, it's not an exact line, but it's from the the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who said there there's no such thing as an Orthodox Jew or conservative Jew or Reformed Jew, we're all just Jews. And um, so if we can look at each other just as part of a, a family and and try and judge for the good, which is a mitzvah that we're supposed to carry out, I think we'd all be better off. And again, I think it, almost everybody has room to improve in that area. I try to improve in that area. Yeah, you asked about like your friends didn't want to question you, and I believe probably the answer is that uh, they were afraid if they would start asking questions, then they would become like you, and that scared them. And you know, here in Detroit, and I tell people all the time, Detroit is an amazing community, and there's a lot of uh, of dialogue and give and take and working together between 
the the religious, the non-religious, the the those that affiliated, the non-affiliated. It's quite amazing. The Jewish Federation here is involved with people from all walks of life. They support Orthodox day schools like nowhere else in the country. And that's one of the reasons is because we all get involved in projects together. And we learn to say, I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, this is how I want to be Jewish, this is how you want to be Jewish. We sort of live and let live, and therefore we can have, and I have many, such relationships with people that are not like me. They don't look like me, they don't act like me, they don't want to be like me, but we're still friends. We need that, and I think that's a beautiful example that should be emulated. One of the last chapters in my book, I think it's chapter 20, is called Out in the World. And in that chapter, uh, many years have passed. I've been, you know, living a, trying to live a Torah observant life for many years. And the way that I dress with usually a hat or a beret and longer skirt and longer sleeves, it makes me very easily identifiable as a Jew to a lot of people. And here in Los Angeles, I mean, there's I don't know, tens of thousands of observant Jews. We are noticeable. And the point that I tried to make in that chapter is that people see me and they they may make judgments. And sometimes people will start a conversation with me, and I feel it's so important to, um, especially at times like that, be open, greet people with a smile, which of course is a mitzvah also, and to be open and to let them know that we're, we're friendly and and we're open, not open to, you know, to a certain extent. Just certainly open to having a conversation, and people will will ask. I I, I mentioned that uh, I went to a laughter yoga class, and a couple of Jewish women kind of pinned, almost pinned me to the wall afterwards, and said, "Isn't it true that Jews like you look down on Jews like us because we don't keep the Sabbath like you do?" And I thought, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I didn't know that laughter yoga was going to become such a serious sport. But I assured them that I was only on a growth path, that I hadn't grown up this way, that I did not judge them. And I meant it. I really meant it. And the more that we can look at, e- at each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt and look for the good in, in one another, the better off we'll all be. You know, it all unfortunately comes to a, to a lack of communication. And I was, if I'm not talking to you and you're not talking to me, so you've already decided for me what I think about you instead of asking me. And the world is afraid to ask. And if we would have the conversation, um, we would find out that besides the fact you have much more in common, but how I choose to be religious has nothing to do with how I actually look at you, which gets back to our judgmental uh, conversation. Right. Yeah. Here in Los Angeles, again, it's a very diverse Jewish community, and you you really can't know where people are holding, so to speak, what what their level is, because they can dress in, in, in a certain way and behave in a certain way that gives very mixed messages, if you know what I mean. Sure. So everybody's on, on their path. And in fact, um, I know uh, some a woman who um, is Orthodox, um, and a, a few of her children did not stay on the Orthodox path. They went off that path, and um, as you know, they they call that off the derech. Derech means a path. 
but she she refuses to phrase it like that. She says, who's to say what their path is? Who's to say that they might not come back later? And they I said, thought that, that's also a, a good example of how we can be judgmental wrongly and unfairly and and further divisions instead of minimizing them. You know, many, many months ago, I I, um, I interviewed, her name was uh, Bati Rudel. I don't know if you're familiar with her. That's who I'm talking about. Ah, see? It's her book. Yes, she calls it On Their Path. On Their Path. That's, yes, I read her book, I reviewed her book, and that's exactly who I'm talking about. And I give her so much credit for bravely um, facing this, this very serious issue that that affects so many families. Right. Isn't it funny how when, 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 I hate to say it this way, when Jews get together, they play geography, and it doesn't take long till all of a sudden they, they have common people that they know. It's just uh, it's an amazing world. That's right. It is an amazing yes, that's world. Right. That's why I told somebody. Mm-hmm. One of the beauties of me sitting in this chair is I do meet people from all over the world. And slowly but surely, the world keeps getting smaller. I love it. So another yeah. thing I saw in your book, and I thought it'd be uh, fun to ask you: um, What is a religious fanatic, and did you become one? <laughs> well, you know how I answer the question. The the, the old joke is uh, the definition of a religious fanatic is anybody who's more religious than me. So it's. Um, I hope I'm not fanatic, uh, but of course there are people who will look at me and say, of course she's fanatic. Who keeps two sets of dishes and then another for, for Passover? You know, who will turn on a light switch on the Sabbath? That's fanatic. But, you know, there's no context to those judgments. So I, I certainly hope I'm not fanatical, but, but I'm not going to worry about the fact that there will certainly always be people who think that I am that's not my concern. Okay, amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, I have so many questions here, but I think we touched on so many important things about your book. And again, I'm speaking to uh, to Judy Gruen, author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith. Um, it's a memoir, it says, by Judy Gruen. And we're going to talk about how to get that book. That's like almost the most important thing. But um, just maybe um, I have one thing interesting I thought we'll find out. Um, we're all continuing to grow. That there's no question. We're always growing. We're not. We're not static. Where some people will say you're either climbing, you're falling down, um, and therefore, for many of us to grow, we we uh, we have to add rules and regulations to our lives. But when you were when you were starting your growing process, if that's a fair word, did you need any signs from God for help, or you were able to do it on your own? I, we always need signs from God, and um, I, I have in one of the earlier chapters that very strange episode in the restaurant where uh, uh, Jeff and I were already married. We were certainly completely kosher in, in our home. Uh, Jeff and I together would only go to a kosher restaurant, but at that time, I was still willing to eat uh, dairy or fish in a non-kosher restaurant. There's one day that um, I was at a work assignment and I I just had this intense craving for a tuna melt and I went to a local place that I liked that was not kosher and had a tuna melt and I got the weirdest pain in my left arm. I'm left-handed. Well, I knew I wasn't having a heart attack 
And I thought, this is weird. And then I thought, no, don't be superstitious. That's ridiculous. Maybe you moved the wrong way. Maybe you slipped the wrong way. But it was weird. And I concluded, because the pain became intense, that God was telling me, you know, you don't have to eat in non-kosher restaurants anymore. And that's what I chose to see from that situation. Uh, there was another situation, on a, a, a funny situation, that I wrote about in the book that some people told me not to write about, and that was the case of having uh, one of Jeff's good friends, a, a very religious Christian who actually was the one who prompted his personal search for, for Jewish authenticity, encouraged him to go to Israel, which had not been in Jeff's mind at all. He came to visit us. Uh, we were very newly married. I still didn't understand why we were doing a number of the things we were doing. And there was a bottle of wine on the table that was not mevushal. And it's very hard to explain this. Um, but we knew that actually Jeff needed to open the bottle and, and pour for our guest for technical reasons. But he uh, was a very... Um, gentlemanly gentleman, and we both knew he was going to, of course, try and get that bottle of wine so that he could do the pouring. Uh, Jeff managed to get it from him, and I wanted to just fall under the floor and die because I thought there's no way that explaining this concept would make us look anything other than religious bigots. But Jeff explained about the holiness of sacramental wine and certain wines you know, we're really meant for Jews, and I'm dying on the spot. I mean, I'm dying. You don't know. And this friend gets up from the chair, and I thought, he's going to say, I knew you people were clannish and leave. But instead, he threw his arms out, and he said, I think that's great. I think Jews should have their own wine. That makes so much sense. And I thought, I've just seen my first open miracle. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing, amazing. Judy, this was so much fun. We learned so much. I would like you to leave us with two things. Uh, maybe more important is how can we get your book? And secondly, um, you know, if you can take 30 seconds, what you'd like to leave us with. Okay, well, first of all, thank you, Steve, for, for the invitation to this program. Uh, I appreciate it so much. It, this book is a work of my heart for many years, and it, it means a lot to me to be able to share the possibility of, of it with, with other people. The book is available in softcover from any book website, indie bookstores, Barnes & Noble, of course, Amazon. It's also available on all the email, uh, sorry, e-book uh, platforms, and there's also a fantastic audiobook fantastic. Anybody who goes on, on the page for my book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi Falling in Love with Faith, can listen to the first few minutes of the audiobook, and, and I'm thrilled with how that came out. Uh, if anybody would like to get on my mailing list, don't worry. I barely send things out once a month, but then I have links to some of my recent work. Um, please go to judybruin.com, G-R-U-E-N. And what I'd like to leave people with is just saying thank you for listening. And um, I hope that wherever people are on, on their faith journeys, that they 
can face down any kind of skeptics in their ranks and and continue to to follow the path that's meant for them. Great. Judy, thank you so much. This was so much fun. If you ever are on a book tour um, in Detroit, uh, please let me know. I would love to come by and say hello, maybe even have a cup of coffee. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you. Okay. Have a good Shabbos and be well. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay, so much information, such a great book, such a fun person to talk to. I hope you listened. I hope you listen again. It's almost like two weeks in a row. I'm having similar conversations, stereotypes, judgmental communication, all, all important stuff. With my very little time left, if we can throw up that poster, the poster is up. Our letter of the week is the mem. It's almost like a box. There's an open box. There's a closed box. It makes an M sound. And my word this week is ma'amin. Ma'amin means to believe or a believer. And, and everybody's journey is just to go ahead and help them become that believer. Go on your journey. Find out who you are, what you are. Pick up Judy's book, whatever it takes, to find out who you are and what you are and what you really want out of life. And by the way, the numerical value is 40. I forgot to throw that in. Okay. Quick, quick uh, famous story. Uh, there's a man on a boat and he's traveling and there's all kinds of merchants there and they're sitting there arguing who has the most merchandise, who's the wealthiest, who has stuff. And uh, they're all fighting. This guy says, my stuff is the most valuable. They said, what? Who are you? What could be valuable? He says, you'll see. They were captured by pirates and this guy goes into the town. He goes to the synagogue and shows people he's an educated fellow and he's knowledgeable and he redeems everybody. And he says, see, my knowledge is in my head and that has the most value over anything. And here's my music, and time has flown by as always. So uh, I hope you liked what we do. I hope you like our new style. We have two segments a week, two shows a week now, one on a specific Torah message, one hopefully on a interview. So thank you to our wonderful and sponsors. You know, I couldn't do without you. Thank you to our wonderful production team. We have Kelsey, Angel, Cole, and Andy. I hope I left you some food for thought. Until next week. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.